Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Construction Approach to Animal Welfare and Training Podcast. We are your host. I am Masa. Hi, everybody, and I'm Sean. We hope that you'll cuddle up with your animal companions and ready for this exciting episode. Before we begin, we have a couple of announcements. At the end of May, we will be presenting at Association for Behavior Analysis International Conference. That's right. We have the honor of joining a group of individuals that will be presenting several different applications of the constructional approach to both humans and animals. So, if you're available and, and want to join us in Boston at the end of May, we look forward to seeing you there. That's right. And next one is that we recently opened up the registration for a group class all about measurement and data collection. That's right, and in there, it's going to be really fun because we're going to explore practical methods to collect data and use that in real life training situations. And we have another new group class we're going to open about constructional fiction. That's right. So please make sure that you join Cout membership. If you join into our premium level, you can actually enjoy half off of all of our group classes and webinars, and even our upcoming annual Cout conference at the end of July. That's right. So the conference date is from July 25th to 30th. And it's going to be an extremely exciting conference. It's going to be unlike any others. The lineup of speakers and topics that they will be presenting on are unlike any that you'll find at any other conference. So please put that on your calendars and we'll look forward to joining you there. In today's episode, we will continue our interview with Dr. Susan Friedman. Please enjoy. One of the things is I've watched you.、Um, You know, and Joe bring talk about things coming out of the coffin, you know, getting, <laughs> getting lost in time or getting lost also because of、uh, misguided cultural fog, social pressure.、Um, and also because there's just so much to learn, you know, we're missing out on so many people. Gold Diamond was just one, I'm sure.、Um, is that I grew up in that Wells Hively, Oglinsley. Um, sort of culture of behavior, of applied behavior analysis. And so the notion that we were constructing new repertoires was just simply part of the air we breathed. So it wasn't until Joe connected those dots for me that I realized that there was a person who then took that sort of philosophical,、um, well, well known view. From an ABA point of view, and then systematized it. And I just I found just the other day in one of my noodling, I have a whole, we, we just need to get together because I have a <laughs> whole really、you. interesting folder of things that I found. But who was it?、Um, and she said that she would, have, she would have thought that it was something new, the constructional approach, except for the fact. Um, here it is.、Uh, I would say that Gold Diamond's version of applied behavior analysis was totally unique if I had not learned a similar approach from my own mentor,、um, Donald Whaley. And then I thought, well, Whaley and Malat was the first book that I ever read.、Uh-huh. And so we are really all literally quite connected with the development of this worldview. And、um, she said, what Gold Diamond. Has done for the field, however, is to systematize his approach in a constructional model.、Yeah. And、wow. so, more than a constructional philosophy,、yeah. which I feel like has been very,、um, 
preeminent in all of my work. He created a constructional model and published detailed descriptions of the general and specific features that characterize the model. Um, He shows how content-free scientific principles of behavior can be used to guide the clinician in identifying critical variables in the past. And so I wanted to share that with you because when I first started hearing the constructional approach, I wanted to push back gently with respect to say, we've always been constructional. I've had Behavior Works merch, a graphic that shows a yield sign that says behavior under construction, check back often. And I made that in 2007 before I started learning from Joe. So I think this, the constructional philosophy versus the pathological eliminate there's something diseased and dysfunctional has been long part of applied behavior analysis or at least some subgroups, the OG, Wells-Hively, you know, that I was hanging in. But it wasn't until Joe brought Gold Diamond right to the table (laughs) that I realized that somebody had systematized it into a model and that in behavior analysis, we actually had a clinical model that was a revelation to me because I started out to be a psychologist, not a behavior analyst, a therapist. And then the behavior analyst just sort of appeared on my path and I cut off to them and never went back to therapy work. And the reason why was I could not find uh, a therapeutic model, a clinical model that made sense to me. And behavior analysis wasn't a clinical model for therapy. It was for teaching. And so now you're reminding me how this path moved me to be in education was because that's where applied behavior analysis had its clearest dot connection. But it was Gold Diamond who was making, creating the dot connections to a clinical therapeutic behavior analysis. And I remember saying to Joe, I can't believe I missed this in my career. Had I known of Gold Diamond's work which he was doing in the middle 70s. I was studying in the middle 70s. Mm. If I had only contacted Gold Diamond yeah. instead of Hively and Lindsley, the educated, right, the educational arm, I would have been a behavior analytic therapist using this constru- Gold Diamond's constructional model. So, but what was here? We are. Yeah, I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it after all. <laughs> yeah, but what was interesting for the development of the construction approach it is came from a lots of yeah. variable his own experience um, in his life. But it is one of it is from education. The program instruction was that's right. Ba- yeah, found the found the you know basic. Yeah, those it four all elements. comes from programmed instruction. Yeah, Sue yeah. Markles. Susan. Yes, yeah, so. Tell me, but tell me um, the four elements, because some of these things have been, you know, they're 40 and 50 years old for me now. Mm. And part of the joy in working with the next generation of behavior analysts like you and many of the teacher assistants on my online course and taking Mary's course is the ability, the opportunity to dip into the new view of our basic principles and that's extraordinarily enriching and i'm picking it up as fast as i can and changing what and how i'm teaching the nuances are changing because of your generation bringing this to me so remind me the four principles of direct instruction or programmed instruction 
Yeah, so it starts with the goal, the terminal repertoire, which is right. what Goldman has yeah. in the very first, first element. Time. Yeah, terminal repertoire. And then it also asks, what's the starting point? So what's the prerequisite that the student or learner needs to have in order to enter this program? So yes. that's the second element, again, on the construction approach, what's current relevant repertoire and resources. And then the third one is procedure, like program steps. What's going right. to be the step from going from where you are now to where you want to go, which is the third element of the construction <laughs> approach. And then the fourth one is it maintaining consequence yep. in the program. Well, in program instruction, I believe it's it's assessed. It's a performance assessment. Performance right? assessment, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, so which was, you know, entirely new. The concept that you could have formative assessments that dynamically yeah. branch you yeah. to different instructional units was unheard of and is still not well adopted. No. And yeah. Um, yeah. good, that's good to remind me, yeah. Well, because behavior is behavior, whether it's teaching behavior, educational objectives, or it's solving um, clinical psychological problems. Mm. Um, the the relevance is so clear yeah. of our basic understanding of how the environment is always influential, even when there's disease and dysfunction or genetic tendencies. Even given all the other pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, no account will be complete without the behavior environment. That's right. Component. So it's very very exciting. And um, I'm very glad to be part of that uh, new wave <laughs> of the old wave. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. New wave of the old wave. That's a good way to say it in a plain English. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. And the funny thing about the constructional approach, too, at least as far as its, um, its application and emergence in a lot of the animal training programs is... Um, you know, it, it, it seems like pieces of the constructional approach are, are continually coming out, you know, and being applied in, in pieces, it seems like. Because it seems like when I was first in ORCA, for example, we were really good at making programs that made sure that we identified our target goal, that we thought about, you know, behaviors that the animal could already do that were close to it. We outlined our shaping steps. We took our performance data. We were doing all of those things. But there were a couple of nuances that are implied in the constructional approach that were often being overlooked. And mm -hmm. I feel like those things are going to be really big paradigm shifters for the way that we start structuring a lot of programs. And it's this basic idea. And, and actually, I read about this first in an Ogden paper which is the funny thing when I later found it in another constructional paper. It's like you're saying, I was like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. Yeah, we've always fighting. been constructional, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's about making the model yeah. that I think is really the um, yeah. the, 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 the new news. Yeah. There's a model that puts it all together. And, and it's this idea that you don't remove consequences for the problem behavior. And that to me was a monumental thing. Because when I started looking back at a lot of the training videos that I had done with the dogs I was working with, I found that most of the really bad problem behavior actually happened as a result of withholding reinforcers. And of the maintaining reinforcers. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so like when the dog's jumping on you and they're basically what's maintaining it is contact and interaction with you, whenever I would turn my back to them, 
they would get worse. They'd start jumping more, nipping at my jeans, barking louder, and it escalates, you know, because they're not getting access to it. And and so that idea that you go ahead and you reinforce, you provide that consequence that's maintaining that behavior, take account of where that mistake happened and go back and make sure that we train to that condition, to me was a monumental thing. And tell me more about what you mean. Oh, finish your thought. I'll, I won't forget my question. <laughs> and um, to me, it was really impactful, especially from that angle that I hear you talk about frequently about a contingency analysis of emotions. Because when I start thinking about the emotional state of my learners, when I think about when they're doing this extreme behavior to get access to some consequence that's important and I'm withholding it from them, I have to imagine that the emotional behaviors and and emotions themselves that would be tacting that contingency would not necessarily be pleasant ones. And so I think it allows us to be a little bit more sensitive to the emotional state of our learners by understanding how those contingencies interact and going ahead and leaving in those consequences for those problem behaviors to not only keep them from escalating, but to allow us to think of that as a marker where we need to train to. So I'm very interested, although I've watched um, several of your videos and podcasts, uh, webinars as well, I'm, I'm very interested to hear about what that would look like mm. when you, because, let's see, collect my thoughts. Um, the, it's very interesting that you say, yes, the constructional philosophy has lent towards constructional Um, procedures in our work all along, which is something that I wanted to be heard. Um, But then when you add some of the things that it has that are not part of that original philosophical or procedural style um, are key, let's get those in too. That really makes my ears perk up. So one of those you say is not withholding the maintaining reinforcer for the behavior you want to change or that you want to construct a different repertoire for. And I've been disseminating the whole 25 years now um, that sort of three, I don't have a name for it, that three path model that is also infused within applied behavior analysis. But where I read about it most clearly 25 years ago was an O'Neill's functional assessment monograph. And so I've been disseminating this three-path paradigm that I'm sure, Masa, you see me present, where the middle path is the first ABC assessment, where you ask, what's the occasion setters, and what are the likely maintaining consequences, um, so that we understand the behavior is not crazy, it's not dysfunction, it's, you know, we're teaching people to have our worldview. This behavior is the result of genetics, learning history, current conditions. This is what the current conditions look like, A, B, C. Then we drop down to a related, a connected path where we ask, what can the animal do instead that's already fully functioning in their repertoire for the same reinforcers they're getting for the so-called problem behavior. And then the third path is what new skills do do we need to teach them? That that three-part model has served me very, very well in disseminating to the animal world a different way of 
understanding problem behavior. It has occasion setters, antecedents, and it has consequences that are outcomes of value for behaving in that way. That we can just ask the animal never to give up the reinforcers, but to change the behavior on which they are contingent. So four on the floor instead of jumping. And then we can ask, but what's the ultimate goal? Wouldn't it be great if we had a dog that just came up, gave you a sniff, and then ran off to do something really active and productive in the yard instead of persisting on this jumping on the visitors? Okay, so that's the three-path model that I've that I've been disseminating and has served quite well in getting people to see a different way of looking at it. That is related to those questions of the five questions that the constructional model would ask us. Tell me, what are you saying that instead of uh, using an existing behavior um, to control the original maintaining reinforcers is not what you're describing. You're describing continuing to reinforce the animal for jumping up on you yeah, yeah, while you're building other repertoires. Tell me more about that. Yeah. And, and this is the, and I, I love the O'Neill model too, because we're, once again, we're coming back to this important point of expanding a degree of freedom, giving them more behaviors that can access that consequence. But um, yeah, in the, in, in this instance, like, let's say the dog's jumping on me when I would go into the, and go into the shelter. We know that the dog, that me just standing there, and this is actually a project that we're trying to get published soon. I've been way too swamped up and everything else to get it dressed up. But um, we did a great project in Orca with a bunch of the students in our local animal shelter where we actually demonstrated that with dogs that were jumping on people, that just your presence... <laughs> Jesus uh, presented that and I did hear it. And then I listened to your webinar about it too. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you just being there, you know, will will maintain that dog's jumping on you. But we also showed that even saying no and pushing them down will maintain them jumping on you. Um, and then we also right. saw that giving them attention will maintain them jumping on you. And so keeping that in mind that just being there and being jumped on maintains the jumping behavior, we'll go ahead and stand there and let the dog jump on us. And whatever consequences are obtained for that, they can continue to have those and access those. But the minute that all four of the paws touch the ground, we're there now giving them more interaction. And so we're increasing the magnitude of it. And the neat thing about that is that comes solely from Dr. Ogden Lindsley. Um, Ogden Lindsley in his research. And conjugate reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. He identified that principle or that concept, and, and that's what we're looking at here. So we're going to allow that consequence to stay present, although it's at a very low magnitude compared to what is available. As their behavior changes, the magnitude of that reinforcer changes as well along those dimensions of the behavior. So as the behavior gets better, the reinforcer gets better as well as that behavior gets worse. The reinforcer starts to The light gets brighter the more the kid moves their foot, right? Exactly. Yeah, I remember him actually telling me about that, if you can believe it. Um, Yeah, so that was a pleasing uh, nuance and use of uh, existing science uh, concepts and terminology when I heard you describe conjugate reinforcement there. Okay, so I have a better vision of it where I might move to... Um, identify that contact is the maintaining reinforcer of the jumping 
and think about the rubbing when all four on the floor as an alternative behavior for getting the maintaining reinforcer. So I'm switching the behavior by protecting the animal's reinforcers. That's the nuanced difference in what you're describing is that you don't even ask the animal to switch out the behavior for that reinforcer. You continue to let them jump, but you offer another contingency that is richer Right. With that maintaining reinforcer. And then in a in a kind of conjugate related way, you increase the magnitude of the reinforcer as the animal does, we would say, more of what we're looking for. So I don't know if it is really a continuum to the animal, but it, it is a way I can see of talking about it, that four on the floor becomes a sit, becomes a lay down, becomes a roll on your side and expose your belly. Yeah. Okay. And the yeah. one thing that I love too about this that ties into stuff that you talk about is uh, you talk about control being a primary reinforcer and, and flipping that perspective. What we actually really think of is that we're not really giving you more of something better because that's going to be perceptually different for the animal. There's going to be conditions where they might prefer to just stand next to you and get one hand. There might be other conditions where they prefer to lay on the ground together and cuddle. And so well, that's why I thought the conjugate idea might not be a perfect fit yeah. because it isn't really about increasing in a conjugate way, both the magnitude and the behavior. So I, 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 I resonate more with your description of it being more discontinuous than that. Yeah. But, but either way, the point that you're making is I understand yeah, yeah, and and I want to I want to say, can I say? Yeah, something? say. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. It's so I know, amazing. I know. I get so yeah passionate. And uh, in the paper that Ogden talked about episodic and conjugate distinction, he says that throughout his research, when we are establishing social behavior, it's better to use social reinforcement with conjugate schedule. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's how right. it's maintained in natural environment. So why not we use it from the get go? And Give me an example of that, Masa, with social yeah, behavior. Yeah, so social behavior, anything that the beha- the behavior that has any interaction with other organism being an, another animal or a human. So dog to dog, mm-hmm. dog to human, and human to human. That's all social. So we might say an example would be, you know, when the child maybe um, doesn't whine for the toy they can't reach, we might praise that they are just standing there pointing but then as they express that what they want we become more animated and and give more praise and then if the child actually mans with a please we would say even more Mm. and that's what Og means by raising the social reinforcers in proportion to the 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 social behavior that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. I wanna I want this is a great discussion because engineering the conjugate schedule is is a heck of a you know is is another skill. Yes. Mm -hmm. It depends on the type of thing. Like sometime delivering food in a conjugate matter, it can be done, but it's kind of it can be difficult. It would end up being a lot like the I Love Lucy episode where her and <laughs> Ethel are wrapping the chocolates on the conveyor belt. Uh. And they're like stuffing them in their mouth. <laughs> so the data, I'll tell you, the data, I have not done a proper review of literature, but my understanding with my snippets with coffee in the morning um, is that it is unclear the extent to which 
different species, no less individuals within species, but let's work on the parametric level now. Different species are even tracking changes in quantity as being more reinforcing than other quantities. So that might be another reason why um, thinking about the relevance of a conjugate schedule with food needs more study because I think I read a study where bears, you know, did not appear to change their behavior in proportion to the amount of food and the discussion of jackpots and the validity of jackpotting dances on the pin of that, uh, the head of that pin mm. as well. So that would be an interesting research avenue to go. I think we just don't really know whether, you know, when I see a really giant ice cream cone, I will put out ever more effort to get there. <laughs> That's what I have on Saturday nights um, <laughs> rather than a small cone, which might not get me up off the chair. Um, so I can see with humans that that's a relevant analogy, but I don't know with animals, whether they have the, uh, whether the magnitude is really a change in reinforcement value. And, uh, and an interesting thing with it too, is we see forms of conjugate reinforcement and punishment um, all across the natural world. Um, like right, right now, right now. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> yeah. e even with inanimate objects, um, mm. going out to the beach and, yeah. you know, you're being burned by the sun as you go out there and you behave. It's Longer. basically a conjugate mm -hmm. punishment schedule until you go That's back inside. Yeah. yeah. Leave the beach. Yeah. And um, well, I think it's really a welcome addition to our thinking and doing yeah. is to ask to introduce conjugate schedules and ask and teach how relevant they are right. to what we're doing. Right, right, and, right. And to me, the, the cool thing about them is it really gets down to that learning process. And what Ogden was also concluding is that when you're teaching a new rule or teaching a new thing to someone, a new response to make, he was saying that a conjugate schedule is a really good way to do it because it allows the organism to realize how moment to moment their behavior impacts the moment to moment reception of these consequences. And Absolutely. so that's why we always use it at the beginning for our interaction guidelines. And then we quickly shift it to an episodic schedule. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when we start moving into our affection loop and then start introducing clicker training and everything else that we do. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's um, some exciting work ahead in polishing the way we talk about this yeah. so that it's readily understood. And by, under, by knowing more about the ways it could be misunderstood, will yeah. sharpen our dissemination skills. Yeah. Um, I think that question of how does what you're saying, describing, differ from that O'Neill uh, replacement behavior, what's in common between the two procedures is we are preserving the maintaining reinforcer. Mm -hmm. And that's been a very, very important part of what I disseminate is I, in fact, I use that as the operationalization of respect. When you understand that. that the animal would not have been doing the problem behavior were the outcomes not reinforcing, mm. then you don't just take reinforcers out of an animal's right. daily budget, right? So you preserve those reinforcers, but you ask for a different behavior. Mm. I can say to a parrot, um, and this is where I got to be um, my phrase of we must allow all organisms, all learners to have a way to say no. And where negative reinforcement comes into my work is I can say to a parrot, you can't bite me to get me to remove my hand. That's not going to be a lasting relationship strategy. 
But if you lean away, I will remove my hand. And then I'm preserving the maintaining reinforcer for the bite, but asking you to shift behavior to something that will be a more lasting but beneficial relationship for caregivers. So it, it does all come together. So I think what they have in common is that we're both having this earnest uh, respect and drawing attention to the fact that you don't just remove reinforcers from learners' right. daily control budgets, you know. Right. But um, the difference is where I would recommend an alternative behavior that already exists in the repertoire and make that swap like a bird leaning away when I put my hand up or a horse moving its head when you bring your hand near with a halter. Um, You're saying, let's let that keep happening. And in a way, you compete with that reinforcer by offering a different contingency that is richer. And gets rich, ever richer as the animal's alternative behavior gets ever more extended or whatever measurement characteristic we're looking for. Is that accurate? Yeah. And, and, and in a roundabout way, we are kind of banking on a procedure much like what you would see with the matching law, which would account for the shifting right. of the organism's responses. Where Of course, which I also read a little bit about last night as I was passing through all this <laughs> maze of great information. Yeah, it was Baum's discussion, early discussion of the matching law. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things... Um, very interesting. When, when I was talking with Joe at ATA, I came in with some questions and points that I wanted to make. And, and one of those was that fits in here is that when something new crosses our path. So one of my worries, and then we'll get to emotions, I promise. One of our worries, one of my worries is that I don't want to reinforce what I call now looking, groping for a clever word. Uh, behavior fashionistas. I don't want people to say, oh, new shiny, like the way when I work with the blackbirds, you know, anything new over there and boom, that's where their attention goes. New shiny. Our, Our work and our contributions and our bringing back the old in new relevance and dialing in nuances and even new, new, new nuances, you know, because those are there to be had as well and are wonderful. When I see people rush to them, pick them up as the new hot item over wearing bell bottoms, I get very nervous about our responsibility as disseminators to control those carts a little bit and to make sure that those people are backfilled with at least a certain amount of science. Mm. So when you say to me, yes, and that description taps into the matching law. For me, that's like, ah, I'm back on firm ground again. (laughs) Or, oh, that relates to, you know, um, a variation of protecting reinforcers. That's been part of our philosophy all along. So that's one thing I share with you, the old actor to the new actors is um, how do we, continue to have the discussions that don't have to be as sciencey as we might have at dinner at ABAI, but, um, or in the graduate school classroom, but that also don't continue to reinforce that new shiny. And I had to, I had to work so hard in the last few months to think about why that would matter to me. 
Like I, I know I've identified that as a worry, but I couldn't figure out what's underneath the worry. And what I finally realized, at least in part, is that if we reinforce like schools of fish moving over to here and then moving over to there without connecting the dots that we're not really moving away from our, our planet, you know, um, I realized what's important about that is if we don't help that happen, then the constructional approach that you're delivering and the protection of existing reinforcers and the competing with a matching law headset, all of that will get dropped when the next new shiny hits the path and the I'm mixing a lot of metaphors. Alexandra Curlin would applaud (laughs) when the the school, because she's a big metaphor teacher, when the school of fish move and we're standing there with gold diamond, right? Saying, hang on, this, this should not be buried again, only to be dug up again, like behaviorism itself. Does that, I appreciate you allowing me that little moment of sharing yeah. That to me is is really important. And um, I, I actually, you know, I my my issue with a lot of the, the fad training situations that get presented out there and really try and push themselves as the grand thought originator and proprietor of everything great in this, I, I feel like it loses a lot of the validity. Um, you know, for me, whenever I'm looking for something to try, something to explore, I, I don't want it to just be because someone liked it. You know, I, I would like to know that there was right. a thought process, that there was a foundation that was... An anchor. It was anchored yes. in existing knowledge. Yeah. And, and to me, yeah. it's only validating. Like when I was first introduced to clicker training, it was through the book, Don't Shoot the Dog. Um, that book... That book and, and a book by an ethologist, um, Patricia McConnell, The Other End of the Leash. The Other End of the Ooh, Leash I is what sent me. Well. I got to meet her once. She was so much fun to get to. She came to an ABAI. She's an amazing. Yes. Yes. And she was the speaker. Mm-hmm. I, was I in have the a front funny row. story I'll share <laughs> off recording sometime <laughs> about Billy Baum coming by our table. But anyway, yes, um, she came to our workshop in Florida with Steve Martin and uh, I and She's really a model of open thinking. She's a delightful and huge contributor, yeah. It just, I love her storytelling. Well, anyways, Patricia's wonderful, and that book sent me back to school. And and then I got from there to Karen's book, uh, Don't Shoot the Dog. And when I was reading that book at first, because I was brand new to clicker training and never even heard of it before at that point, and start reading that book and I'm starting to understand what she's saying and how this is supposed to work and why this is a good idea. But what really hit me in it was when she started outlining the scientific history that, that led up to the application of clicker training, when she got into Skinner and conditioned reinforcers and then even the behavior debate that is live and well still today in the world and, and why that was actually even a good thing for that scientific field. And that was really... It was something to me that really led credibility to the procedure. And I think when you stick back to those things and you can point to those anchors and the research that supports the idea of this being good, I I think it's, I I think that's what we should all maybe be, not maybe, that's what we should all be looking for when we should be careful about. And when I see, you know, I, 
I'm really a behaviorist through and through. You know, Cheney once said to me, you are a lifestyle behavior analyst girl. And I thought that was the best compliment anybody ever gave me. But I knew what he meant. When I see people doing the behavior fashionista thing and the school of fish moving from one to the other, you know, we're talking a lot more about the, the a good use of negative reinforcement and so forth. But positive reinforcement was not a fad. Right. And negative reinforcement is not a breakthrough. Right. Right. And so now in this, right. One was not a fad. It's not to be turned away from. And one is not a breakthrough. It's been there in that O'Neill model. The parrot leans away. That's negative reinforcement. My work with the rhino where we locked them in one place to calm down. Negative reinforcement. I mean, it has been letting animals have a way to say no and children to have a way to say no. Negative, you know, so that's what I, I wanted to share with you because I'm at the stage in my life. I don't, I'm not getting into the coffin. And when I do, do not dig me back up, <laughs> but I am definitely at the stage in my life where I'm looking for people. This sounds so crazy to, it's a it's sort of personal disclosure. I'm looking for people that, that really, I feel as though uh, our, the work we did in the last 25 years will be in good hands. We're passing them on to good hands. And I sometimes feel this urgency to say, these are my concerns. This is what I'm seeing from the view of this many years that I just want to hand to you. And then, and then it's yours to address or not as you think of. And this has been a big one on my heart for me is um, as we bring in the new nuances that we're mindful of, helping people always ask, what's the science in this? And that's why I did love on the ATA webinar that you taught, which was fabulous. And the videos were wonderful. And your manner of teaching was kind and effective. All the things I look for in the next generation um, is um, when I think it was someone named Gwen, who I haven't met yet, said, what I see is negative punishment when you take your hands off. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I thought, that's what we want. We want that behavior because right or wrong, we could debate it. You know, Ken Ramirez and I are still debating whether it's extinction or timeout in, in the least re- reinforcing scenario. You know, I say it's timeout because it's contingent. He says it's extinction because I don't know why he's wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> so it's not even the rightness of it, but right. somebody in that crowd was trying to swim through the new information to find the anchor. And I thought that really deserved (laughs) some applause. And I think you and I can, can, and Masa and others can continue to teach that procedure, that critical thinking, analytic thinking, anchor fishing, scuba diving for the science in all things that appear to be new to me is not new to our field. This marks the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Susan Friedman. Please remember to sign up for the CALP Membership Premium Plan and take advantage of the 50% discount to our Measurement and Data Collection Group class, Construction Affection Group class, and the upcoming third annual CALP Conference. Check out our website as we will announce the titles and abstracts of the CALC conference and open the registration. We will put all the links to the description below. 
if you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast or share it with your friend. And feel free to get more information or reach out to us on our website, caawt.com, or our Facebook page, Construction Approach to Animal Welfare and Training, Instagram at npo underbar caawt, or you can always email us at caawtcontact at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us today. We are your host, I am Masa. And I'm Sean. Have a wonderful day with your amazing animal companions. <laughs> <laughs>